You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. Those of you who have known me for a long time would also know that I've been passionate about the need for Christians to get their backsides into local churches regularly and frequently. There are a huge number of Christians who rarely or never go to church on a regular basis. The reasons Christians stop going to church, of course, are many and varied. Some get sick of watching the in crowd get hyped up and self-absorbed and self-congratulatory at what looks more like a rock concert than a worship service. And they sit on the sidelines wondering why they don't feel the same level of excitement. Or maybe they've had enough of getting boxed around the ears by the preacher yet again for how bad they are, how sinful they are, and how there's no hope for them. Maybe it all just seems so shallow, so confusing, so pointless or so clicky, and they're not part of that click. Maybe someone in the church has hurt them, and the issue has been handled poorly by either by themselves or by the church leadership. Some people just get bored. They hear pretty much the same stuff preached week after week and wonder why such a thick book as the Bible doesn't seem to deal with any other than these few topics that they keep hearing. If you've been around for churches for very long or been part of many churches, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I've seen too many Christians walk away from church for my liking. And walk away is probably not the best term to use. Most of them don't actively abandon or reject church. They just give up on it. It becomes too hard to get up on a Sunday morning to gather with people they don't like or don't care about, to sing songs that don't inspire them, to listen to some preacher drone on and on and on about that favourite subject yet again. Several good friends of ours have have done just that. Only recently they were telling us how hard it is to find a good church. So they've given up trying. One of them makes no pretense of wanting to go to church at all anymore. Another has substituted listening to podcasts while doing housework for church. Another tries to get along to church as often as the spouse will allow it, but that's not very often. And yet another has taken Sunday morning work shifts and can't get to church anymore anyhow. All of them were actively involved in churches in years gone by. All of them were committed and passionate believers. If you'd asked me 10 years ago, I would never have guessed that that's where they'd be today. I've told you many times in the past about how it breaks my heart to watch this happen, suggesting that it may not be spiritually healthy to abandon church is usually to be met with angry responses and self-justification and accusations about being holier than thou. I once expressed to one of my closest friends that I was genuinely concerned that the path that they were taking might lead them to abandoning their faith entirely and ending up in hell as a result. You can imagine that that was not very well received. Fortunately, our friendship has survived, but it's never been quite the same since but it is a genuine concern of mine. The Apostle Paul warned Timothy 
about people who have rejected and abandoned their Christian convictions and their clear conscience. And he said, by this they have made shipwreck of their faith. Those I've seen take this path have ended up at best apathetic about Christian faith and about the church and at worst bitter and critical of churches in general and of Christians in particular. Now, I've also been pretty passionate about the need to be a committed member of a local church. Flitting around from one church to another as your whim drives you is barely any healthier than not going at all. Neither is showing up once every few months when you feel like going or when you start to feel guilty because you haven't shown up for a while. You might ask, why do you care? Why do I care what others do with their Sunday mornings? What business is it of mine if they prefer to sleep in or listen to podcasts or different preachers or go to church only occasionally? It's a good question. Why should I care? Why do you care about your family and your friends coming to know Christ? Does it matter to you? Isn't it their business whether they want to be saved and have eternal life? And well, ultimately, yes, it is their business. But don't we all want what's best for our friends, for our family? And haven't we learnt that what's best is to be in a healthy relationship with Jesus Christ? So, of course, we care what happens to them. That healthy relationship with Christ is supposed to manifest itself in a desire to be in a church on Sunday morning. A lack of desire is, in my opinion, a symptom of a much deeper disease. There are things the Lord does in us when we plant ourselves in a healthy local church. He uses various means to shape us, to grow us, and to use us to bear fruit for his kingdom. We'll get into the how and the what of what he uses over the next few weeks. And it should go without saying, of course, that when I talk about being part of a local church, I'm not suggesting that only Sunday morning gathers, uh, gatherings constitute a real church. That's just the most common and the traditional time that churches gather. I think it became that way, a Sunday morning gathering, for a couple of reasons. The New Testament seems to suggest that the church is gathered on the first day of the week. That's at least partly because the resurrection occurred on a Sunday morning. So churches felt that that's the appropriate time to get together to celebrate the resurrection. The other is probably a bit more practical. Most people in earlier generations worked from Monday through to Saturday, a six-day week. Sunday was their only day off. So Sunday was the only practical day for a church to gather. That's not necessarily the case anymore, of course, at least in most Western countries. Most of us work Monday to Friday. And most of us get a two-day weekend. But there are plenty of people who work shifts, work nights, weekends, whatever. And if you have kids, school sports is most likely today on a Sunday morning. So plenty of churches choose to gather on a Friday night or a Saturday afternoon or a Sunday evening or some other time that suits, that suits their people. So when I'm talking about Sunday morning church, I'm using it just in a generic sense. I'm sure you understand that. I think the first thing we should do is look at what a church is not. Plenty of Christians have used 
these as excuses to not be a part of a declared local church, one that meets as a church, as we've traditionally understood churches to be. We've all heard the old saying, a church is not a building, it's the people. And that's true. Many churches are no longer church buildings anyway. They're pizza joints instead, or cafes or offices or even private homes. A building has never constituted a church. A church has always been the people. The building is just there to facilitate the gathering of the people in that church. But interestingly, many people who no longer go to Sunday morning church meetings use that uh, a church is not the building, it's the people, as the justification for their absence. They say by their actions that they don't want to get together with people not just in the building, but with other people. The early church didn't have their own buildings, as we know. They met in the temple courtyard or they met in private homes, according to Acts 2.46 and various other passages. So we don't need a building to be a church. But saying a church is not a building, it's the people, is also misleading because people then assume that anything can be a church as long as Christians are getting together. After all, didn't Jesus say, when two or three are gathered in my name, there I am amongst them? So then I don't need to go to Sunday church, a Sunday morning church every week to be fulfilling my church commitments, do I? I can get together the cafe with Christians. So many Christians have used that reasoning to conclude that when they meet up with other Christian friends in a coffee shop, they've done church for the week. Or they've invited Christian friends over for a meal, and as long as they say grace before the meal, invite the Lord's blessing on their time, then they've done church for the week. Or they take it a bit more seriously, maybe, and they get their friends around for a Bible study. Two or three or ten people gather in Jesus' name to read and think about and discuss his work. His word, that constitutes church, doesn't it? Perhaps they gather on a Friday night in a soup kitchen, run by a Christian organisation to serve the poor and the homeless. Two or three Christians or more are gathered together to serve the less fortunate. Isn't that church then? If that's what Jesus was talking about, all these scenarios mean that the Christians have done church for the week So if they choose to sleep in on Sunday morning, they don't need to feel guilty. And who are we to say otherwise? After all, in each of these scenarios, they could claim that they are gathering in his name, to some degree at least. In fact, I'd bet if I challenged my friends about their decision to stay home from church, those words would probably be part of their explanation. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am amongst them. Is that what Jesus is really suggesting when he said that. To be sure, we need to look at the context of the whole passage, not just pluck out that one verse. And I think we'll find that he was actually more likely talking about a gathering in a proper church situation. Matthew 18.15, if you've got your Bibles, I'll give you a moment to open up while I have a drink. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. But Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. 
If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him to be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Let me read the verse in its original context, which is something we should always do when we're reading the Bible. It seems pretty plain that Jesus is not talking about your home Bible study or your coffee with Christian friends or any of those other scenarios that Christians use as an excuse to avoid Sunday morning church. Jesus is clearly talking about resolving issues of sin that arise amongst the people of God. And if necessary, that must escalate up to the level of discipline in the whole church. It's a matter of church discipline that Jesus is actually talking about. It should be, if it should be necessary to take the issue to the level of the church, then Jesus promises that his authority and his presence will be granted to them to bind or loose this person. Because it won't just be those two or three binding and loosing on their own in discipline. Jesus himself will be there joining with them in that action. This must be how his disciples understood it because because Peter then goes on in the next couple of verses to ask Jesus a practical question about how that works out when a brother sins against him. Does he have to forgive him as many as seven times? So Peter understood Jesus to be talking about a discipline situation. Where in that passage does Jesus suggest that two or three Christians gathered for coffee constitutes church? Or at a soup kitchen? Not anywhere that I can see. Certainly not at home listening to podcasts on your own. It's hard to exercise that sort of discipline against one who has sinned against you if you're home alone. So Matthew 18.20 doesn't define what a church is. Rather, it defines what a church does. There's a very big difference. So let us at least, even if no one else agrees with us, let us stop using that passage to justify any gathering of any sort for any purpose as a substitute for the regular Sunday morning church gatherings. All of these other events may be a gathering, but they are not the gathering. So if I'm right, then that means all the usual excuses used for not gathering with others on a Sunday morning don't hold much water. And I would contend that the Bible shows us pretty clearly that Christians are meant to gather together regularly in churches. From the day of Pentecost, the day that the church was born, God's people have come together often and regularly to worship. A lone ranger Christian is unheard of in the Bible. There is no such thing. In fact, the very first Christians were so committed to meeting together and to supporting each other, 
that it makes most of us look lazy and apathetic by comparison. Acts 2.41, if you want to have a look there. On the day of Pentecost, those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. And all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favour with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Many Christians say they want the church to get back to the book of Acts, but few of them, few of us, would be prepared to put in that sort of commitment. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and distributing the proceeds to all, day by day, attending the temple together. That's commitment. Now, we can't be too critical of my friends if they don't do that because we don't show that sort of commitment either. But while we might not be inclined to show commitment like that, especially in our consumeristic society, what I think we can say is that a Christian should want to be with other Christians and should want to be with them often. For these people, other Christians are now our people. These are the people we now have the most in common with. These are the people we now share a DNA with through the blood of Christ. Regardless of their economic status, their race, their education levels, their gender, political leanings, personality, it doesn't matter. We share DNA with other believers and we should want to be with them. But Christ has made us one. Scripture tells us, Ephesians 2 tells us, but now in Christ, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Paul goes on to say a few verses later, in him, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. To choose to be separated from other Christians is as absurd as saying that a brick on the rubbish heap is an integral part of a building. The famous passage in 1 Corinthians 12 uses the image of the body of Christ to make that even clearer. 1 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul writes, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. How can a Christian staying home listening to podcasts say they are more than one member and one body? That verse alone should convince Lone Ranger Christians 
that they really can't and they really shouldn't go it alone. The eye cannot say to the hand, Paul writes, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. There's no part of our bodies, our physical bodies, that can survive once it's separated from the body. If a surgeon amputates your leg, how long do you think it will survive without the source of life that comes from your heart pumping the blood around? Paul says if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Before launching into his explanation of how all the parts work together, Paul points out now you, and that's you plural in the Greek, as the South American South would say, y'all, now y'all are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Y'all are the body of Christ and individually members of it. For as in one body, he says in Romans 12, we have many members and the members do not have all the same function. So though we, though many, are one body. And we're one body in Christ. And note this, we are individually members of one another. We are members of one another. We are not isolated. We are not meant to be isolated. I think we're beginning to build a bit of a case for the importance and even the necessity of gathering together with other Christians. There's plenty more to be said, though. After the apostles were imprisoned for preaching about Jesus in Acts chapter 4, they went back to their new Christian family, and it tells us they prayed and the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. You'd be hard-pressed to say of any Lone Ranger Christian that they are of one heart and soul with anyone but themselves. When the first deacons were chosen in Acts chapter 6, the reasoning was that the apostles needed to devote themselves to prayer and preaching the word. And what they said, it tells us, pleased the whole gathering. Later on, Paul and Barnabas returned to Antioch after planting a church there, and when they arrived, they gathered the church together. In the next chapter, the church in Jerusalem wants to send a letter to Paul and Barnabas in Antioch. So the apostles and the elders with the whole church chose men from among them to send to Antioch. I think it's pretty clear, isn't it? These men, when they arrived in Antioch, gathered the congregation together and delivered the letter to them. Go on and on and on. But maybe just one more. Luke writes in Acts chapter 20, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread. Sounds an awful lot. What traditional church. Scripture consistently shows believers gathering together for fellowship, support, worship, teaching, encouragement, and more. On the rare occasion that Paul finds a small but lone group of believers in Ephesus, He quickly sorts out what's missing in their theology, baptizes them, and they become the foundation of one of the most important churches in Asia Minor. Say it again. There is nowhere in scripture that we see Lone Ranger Christians. They always gather together. It's the most natural thing for them to do. Remember, Jesus calls his believers his sheep, his flock. And sheep naturally 
flock together. In fact, it would seem in the Bible that lone rangers are more likely to be wolves in sheep's clothing than genuine sheep. Be warned by that. Sheep that stray from the flock usually don't last very long. They quickly get picked off by wolves. It's instructive to realise that nearly all of the New Testament consists of letters written to churches. From Romans through the Hebrews, that's more than half of the New Testament. The only ones written to individuals are three letters written to the church leaders, Timothy and Titus, and one to Paul's personal friend Philemon. The book of Revelation is a letter sent to the seven churches of Asia, one of which is that church at Ephesus that was planted by Paul when he encountered that small band of lonely believers. How important is church gathering? I won't say too much about lone Christians versus gathered Christians. I think that should be pretty obvious by now. For now, I'll read you a whole bunch of verses about how Christians are to treat, treat each other that are impossible to do unless you're in the church. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in such harmony with one another that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Greet one another with a holy kiss. How do you do that when you're home alone? All the churches of Christ greet you. Speaking of the Lord's Supper, Paul writes, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. And there's more. Through love, serve one another. Bear one another's burdens. Speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Submit to one another, one another out of reverence for Christ. If we walk in the light as he, in the, he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Maybe I'll finish this off with one more one another passage. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is a time not to be neglecting our church gatherings, but to be pushing into them. There are plenty more one another's in the Bible, but tell me, how is it possible to do all of these things unless you are part of a regularly gathered local church? So it's not just difficult to be a lone range of Christian. It's impossible. You simply cannot fulfill what is expected and required of you as a Christian unless you regularly gather with other Christians. Now I could talk, I could continue by talking about all the passages that deal with problems in the local church or relationships in the local church or disorder in the local church. Or I could remind you that the church here on earth is a foretaste of the new heavens and the new earth that we will one day share with every other believer in history. Or I could tell you about how Jesus Christ gave his life 
for this bride called the church. So how dare we reject or abandon or belittle the church? As one author has written, any minimization of the church or dissociation from the church by a Christian is actually a rejection of God himself. For the church is his institution and his ministry. That's a serious accusation by that author. But I think it's right. I think it's true. I agree with him. For the church, with all its faults and failings and even hypocrisy, is God's idea. Not man's. It's God's idea. And if it's God's idea, then it must be not only good for us, it must be necessary for our spiritual health and our well-being. There is much more to the purposes and benefits of being part of a local church than those I've just mentioned today. I'll get into them in more depth over the next few weeks or so. But my desire today is that you would have fixed firmly in your minds, in your convictions, that abandoning the local church is not an option. To be separated from a local church is not just unbiblical, it is harmful to the life of every Christian who separates themselves. Maybe surprisingly, it's also harmful to those who choose to remain committed to a local church. For that means that that local body is missing out on something that that Christian is supposed to bring to it, missing out on some of the ministry that is meant to happen there, missing out on some of the one one another's that God is calling that separated Christian to fulfil. Sadly, as most of you know, we won't be gathering as a local church for very much longer. When we cease, I hope and I pray and I trust that you will find another church to call home. And I pray that you'll commit to it, that you'll serve it faithfully, just as you've been committed to in serving City Edge for all these years. But there's a local church out there that's filled with other brothers and sisters in Christ that needs your fellowship, your love, your encouragement, your talents, your God-given gifts. Over the next few weeks, I plan to talk about what to look for when you're trying to decide if a church is both healthy, but also if it's right for you. I hope and pray that you'll find a church that lifts up Jesus Christ in every area of their ministry so that you can continue to grow strong and healthy in the Lord and put down deep roots in his word. I ask you to please be thinking and praying about this now. Our friends say that they can't find a good church. There's a lot of good churches. There's a lot of healthy churches. If you want to, if you have the desire, if you have the heart to gather with other believers. Don't take the pending closure of City Edge Church as an opportunity to abandon the church altogether, I hope. And I don't think any of you would do that. I know your hearts too well. I've seen your commitment too well. We'll do everything we can as a couple to help you find somewhere healthy, and uh, and for ourselves too, we'll be doing the same. But now I think 
Let's close in communion, shall we? Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.